Let me ask you to turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, and we are going to, in a moment, uh, read from verse 68 as we begin our Advent series. By the way, four weeks from today is Christmas. Just a reminder, we are well into uh, that time of year. We're going to look this uh, Advent season at what some have called the songs of the nativity, the songs of, of Christmas, and they are specifically in the Gospel of Luke. Now, uh, one theologian identifies those songs as the last of the Hebrew Psalms and the first of the Christian hymns. Uh, they appear only in Luke. Uh, another writer suggests that uh, Luke understood that the gospel is and must be a musical. It's not enough simply to say what God has done to save us. What he has done needs to be celebrated in song. Now, Today we're going to look at uh, Zechariah's song, sometimes called the Benedictus, which means blessed. In a moment when I read it, I want you to ask yourself, why? Why did they name it the Benedictus? What is it about this? And here we have uh, just come out of uh, the Beatitudes where we see all of the various blesseds. And here it is again. His name was Zechariah. Hers, Elizabeth. He was a priest of Israel. They had been together a long time. Been married a long time. But in their immediate family, it was just the two of them. They'd wanted children. In fact, they had prayed about that. That was their ongoing prayer for many years. But now they were beyond that. They had come to realize God evidently is not going to answer that prayer for us. Certainly not the way we're praying it. We're far too old at this point. Zechariah being a priest for the people of Israel in Jerusalem, it was his turn to represent the people. And so the people waited outside while he went into the temple representing them. And as he was about to uh, do the ceremony of incense on the right of the altar there appeared an angel of God now whenever angels appear in the scripture there's fear 
And this was no different. He wasn't used to seeing an angel there in the temple. Had never seen one before. So far as we know. The angel said, don't be afraid, as they always do. I have come to tell you, the angel said, that your prayer is going to be answered. My prayer? We can speculate him thinking. Wonder which prayer that is. Your prayer. You're going to have a son. Now, his response was not, well, praise God, I know that nothing is impossible with God. His response was not, well, you know, I do know the story of Abraham and Sarah. I know he's done it before. Evidently, he's going to uh, do this miraculous thing again. His response, basically, to the angel was, uh, so prove it. How am I going to know? that this is going to come to pass. The angel, who by now had introduced himself as Gabriel, said, you want proof? You got it. In fact, you're not going to speak. From this moment, it's okay, it's my grandchild. It's quite all right. (laughs) You're not going to speak from this moment until the baby is born. That was the case. Probably he tried to speak to answer back and nothing came out. In fact, the people outside began to wonder, well, what, ha- what happened to him in there? He just went in to do the ceremony of incense and all of that. Where, where, where's Zechariah? And when he came out, he couldn't talk. And he did not speak for more than nine months after that. Fast forward. Baby's born to his wife. Still no sound out of Zechariah. Then eight days later, uh, they take him, as would any good Jewish parents, to be circumcised and to name, uh, be named. And so they, they ask Elizabeth, what, what, what are you going to call him? Zechariah can't talk. And she says, he'll be called John. And they said, wait a minute. John. The cousins are saying, there aren't any Johns in our family. This is a firstborn son. A firstborn son you name after the father. This should be little Zechariah. Or at least after someone else in the family. 
And so they appealed to Zechariah. He, they signed to him, so maybe he couldn't hear either. We, we don't know that. But he signaled for them to give him a writing tablet. And they did. And he wrote on there, not we're thinking about calling him John, maybe. His name is John. Well, the people were shocked at that. But they were more shocked at what was about to happen. And that is, after nine months and eight days or so, he began to speak. And oh, how he began to speak. Filled with the Holy Spirit of God, he began to speak prophecy. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of the servant David. Verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. The oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, speaking to His Son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Amazing words, Lord, that you gave to him, that he uttered, not because they were all pent up inside of him, but because you saw fit to give your prophecy in that day for them and for us. Lord, will you teach us today? Will you help us to see the beauty of the gospel in these words? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I didn't read to you uh, the verse before when he began to speak which talks about the prophecy. Verse 67, it says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying... Now, there's one thing I want you to know here and see about this kind of a a prophecy, 
and this is not at all unusual, but what you will see is he speaks in the, the past tense and also looking to the future. In other words, and, and we'll see this next week in talking about Mary's song as well. We see it in the Old Testament quite often. Here's the point. Sometimes when prophecy is uttered, it is so sure that it is going to take place that it is spoken of as if it had already happened. It had already been completed. But then there's always that aspect of that which will come as well. So he prophesies, but by faith talks about them as if uh, they're already done. Now what we're going to see in this uh, prophecy is really a a rather full-orbed understanding of the gospel that we talk about every single week here. And we're going to see it from a number of different aspects and angles and theological uh, perspectives just in what he says uh, as he utters these words out loud. And, and just put yourself in the position of those people. You know, you haven't heard him for all this time. What are going to be his first words? And, and, and that was them. Amazing. Verse 68, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has visited. Now, that's the doctrine of the incarnation. We've been singing about it all morning. And we will all throughout uh, our, our Advent time. But... Just a reminder in terms of what the incarnation is. The way to remember it, in carne, in the flesh. If you can't remember that, think of chili con carne. That's not chili with beans. It is chili with flesh in it. I know. That's not appetizing, but you'll never forget that. In the flesh. God in the flesh. He has visited us. It is crucial that we get this. That salvation is not something that comes from man. If it was, He wouldn't have had to come in the flesh. But it always comes from God. True salvation, true relationship with God is going to start with God, be initiated by Him, completed by Him as well. It's about Him coming near to us. God going out of His way to come to us. Now, I have to tell you about Dietrich Bonhoeffer again. I know, last Christmas I got his his biography, rather, and after reading that, it spurred me on to read a number of his other writings, and that's why all year I've been sprinkling sermons with things that he said. But, But here's one of the things that he wrote from prison Uh, to his 
uh, fiancé. And this was prison before he was about to be executed. He didn't know whether that would be the case or not. But he wrote this eloquently. A prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. Do you get it? Here he is in the prison cell saying, here I am and here I, I have my own little world. But you know, there's, there's no hope from this side of me ever bursting out of that door. My only hope is for someone on the outside to open the gate. And he, Bonhoeffer says, that's not a bad picture of Advent. Here we are in darkness, without hope, going about our own little world. And, and the gate to freedom will never be opened unless someone from the outside does that. Now, how, how far did Jesus come? C.S. Lewis, and I'm always searching for, uh, if you come across illustrations of the incarnation, I, I'm always searching for those. But C.S. Lewis said, he was like a shepherd becoming a lamb in order to sacrifice himself to save the rest of the flock. The shepherd actually becoming a lamb to sacrifice himself to save the rest of the flock. That's a picture of the incarnation. So we see God intervening from the outside. If he didn't, we would not have salvation. And then in that same verse, he, he used the term redeemed. To use this word is, again, a key to understanding the gospel. And sometimes we say it so often. We talk about redemption. We in Christian circles, we talk about it so much that it can begin to lose its impact or its meaning. He bought back. He purchased. That's what he did on the cross for us. We couldn't pay for our own sin because we're sinners. He could pay for our sin because He isn't a sinner. And so as we say, He lived the life that we should have lived and He died the death that we deserved to die. And then verse 69, He used the phrase horn of salvation. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. Now, again, that phrase comes from the Old Testament, a number of different places. Wherever it talks about the, the horn, you, you, you can think of the horn of the animal. Uh, it's, it, it pierces things. It protects the animal. It's a sign of uh, strength. It's an important part of that animal for that animal's sake. And so whenever uh, we see the word horn or horn of salvation, it's talking about the strength and power of salvation coming as a mighty act of God. And then in verse 70, he says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. He's talking about fulfilled prophecy. Now, as I said, he was prophesying under the power of the Holy Spirit and reminding them that this 
of this fulfillment of previous prophecy. And, and I think in, in our day, not being Jewish, we, we underestimate what prophecy meant to them. That was their hope. See, when we talk about salvation, we look back, as we were talking about earlier this morning. We look back at what Christ did. And so it's a matter of faith whether we are going to believe what He did was effective for us or not. But for them, it was all looking forward. And so it was precious to them. They held on to their prophetic utterances of those who spoke for God. It was their great hope. And then verse 71, he, he kind of talks for here a bit about temporal help, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, last week, we talked about, uh, from the Beatitudes, about persecution. And uh, the people that were hearing this prophecy would have been persecuted by Rome at some point if they came to faith. They needed deliverance. They might not have experienced physical deliverance from those unrighteous rulers. But when it comes to Christ, there's a protection. There's no longer anything ultimately that can be eternally taken from them. Listen to this. Uh, This was in the 5th century, the words of John Chrysostom who was a a true believer. He was threatened with banishment uh, by the Roman emperor because of his faith. He, He understood that there wasn't really anything the emperor could do to him. The emperor threatened him with banishment. He said, thou cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. But I will slay thee, said the emperor. Nay, thou cannot for my life is hid with Christ in God. The emperor said, I'll take away your treasures. No, you cannot. For my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. And finally the emperor said, but I will drive you away from man and you shall have no friend left. No, you cannot. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing that you can do to hurt me. That's what a right understanding of this is. It's not always about a a temporal protection. That we won't be harmed in this world, but, but being harmed in this world is not ultimate harm. And that's what we are protected from. And then he talks about mercy. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. If there's no mercy, there's no salvation. It's mercy, it's grace, and not justice that will prevail. God is perfectly just, but he chooses to show mercy. And by the way, that's what John was announcing as well in terms of what Jesus would do. Down in verse 77, it says, to give knowledge of salvation 
to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. And then he goes on and talks about the covenant. And how appropriate is that? Here we have uh, a child being brought for circumcision as a sign of the covenant. And he ties that in to what all's going on here in, in verse 72. He says to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of the enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So here it's emphasized. The covenant. Zechariah and Elizabeth believed the promise of salvation. They understood the way we understand baptism now, that circumcision was the sign of entrance into the covenant community. And so they brought him for this. But it was just a sign. It didn't save him. It pointed to that ultimate faith. Now everyone in the village showed up for that big event it's like when we have baptisms here, we have extra family and some friends that, that come for that. And then we see him prophesying, him speaking in essence, blessing his own son, John. Verse 76 to 79 that I read earlier. You, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And then it explains what he's coming to do. Now, what's John's primary role? People would say, to prepare the way. And that's true. And in a large degree, what he was, the way he was preparing the way was to show the people there's another kind of salvation that is coming and it may not be what you've been looking for. You might have been looking for salvation from Rome. Salvation from those who are over you. But what he says here is this. That's not your greatest need. See, that's the problem uh, it, it, for churches that would preach just to felt needs. In other words, okay, what are people feeling like they need? Let's, let's preach to that and we'll fill the church up and all that. And, and it's, it's true, people will flock to that. But the problem is this. People don't always know what their biggest need is. They do have felt needs. They know what their biggest felt need is. But these people thought their greatest need was for freedom, for freedom to prosper. Does that sound familiar? For those kinds of things. And he makes it clear. That's not your greatest need. You need light because you sit in darkness in the shadow of death. And there is one that is coming that will guide you to peace. 
So how do we apply it? He talks about light and darkness. That's fulfillment of prophecy as well. Isaiah 60, verse 2. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples. I've told you about this. The only time I've ever seen pure darkness was uh, when I was pastoring a church in Pennsylvania, coal mine country. We went down into a deep mine. They took me one day when the mine wasn't working down into a deep mine, hundreds of feet below the surface of the earth. I couldn't even think about it. It was too creepy. But I was there, and I had on the, the helmet with the lamp and all that, and the several that were with me said, okay, now, let's all turn our lights off. Now, you better believe I kept my hand on my light because I just knew they were going to run away and leave me in the mine and have a big laugh over me. But we turned off our, our lamps and stood there and could see nothing. And I, I remember doing this, and I could see nothing. Zero. Isaiah says, that's the plight of the world in their sin. There is no hope. They cannot find their own way. And John says, that's who's coming. The God who became man. James Edwards tells uh, this true story. It took place back in 1957, August, four climbers, two Italians, two Germans, were climbing the 6,000-foot near-vertical north face in the Swiss Alps. The two German climbers disappeared, never to be seen again. They never found them. The Italian climbers were stuck. They were dying. They were on a ledge. They couldn't go up. They couldn't go down. And they were stuck. Now, the Swiss Alpine Club had forbidden any kind of rescue attempts on that north face. It's just too dangerous. But some Swiss climbers on their own decided to try to mount a rescue uh, for these Italian climbers that were stuck. So they lowered one climber named Alfred Halapart down this 6,000-foot north face. They suspended him on a cable that was a fraction of an inch in size, and they lowered him down. This is how Halapart described it in his own words. As I was lowered down the summit, my comrades on top grew further and further distant until they disappeared from sight. At this moment, I felt an indescribable aloneness. Then for the first time, I peered down the abyss to the north face of the Eiger. The terror of the sight robbed me of breath. The brooding blackness of the face falling away in almost endless expanse beneath me 
made me look with awful longing to the thin cable disappearing about me in the mist. I was a tiny human, a tiny human being dangling in space between heaven and hell. The sole relief from terror was my mission to save the climber below. That's a picture of the heart of the gospel. We were trapped. We had no way that we could rescue ourselves. But in the person, in the presence of Jesus, God lowered himself into the darkness by Jesus becoming a tiny human being, being lowered into the abyss, hanging between heaven and hell. His incentive those he was coming to rescue. And that's us. That's the gospel. It's more radical than any other religion that talks about working your way to God. It is God coming to us. His risky, costly, sacrificial rescue on our behalf in Jesus Christ. Let's bow together. Lord, will you help us to receive that, that truth? It's not just a a story about a, a guy named Jesus. It's an account of God becoming man and giving himself to rescue us from ourselves, from our sin. We give you praise. Will you open our hearts to you by faith? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.